You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. So you're a woman now. And God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And what, Carrie? Say it. Oh, Mom. Say it. Talk to me. Say it. Please, just talk and to me. And Eve was weak. Just, just talk to and me, please. I just, sin I just want you to talk to me. Was a sin of intercourse. And the first sin was a sin of intercourse, Mama. Say it. Why didn't you just? Why didn't you tell me, Mama? God Mama, please. It, with a it curse, hurts. And the curse it was hurts. a curse of blood. I'm not gonna say that. That's not even in the Bible. It doesn't oh, say that Lord. anywhere. Help this little girl see the sin of her days and ways. Show her she's made innocent. The curse of blood would not have come upon her as it did upon Eve. I'm not Eve, Mama. I didn't sin. You showered with those other girls. You had lust-filled thoughts. Everyone has to shower, Mama. Everyone. No, That's no, just the rules. Different. You must be different because he can see I don't see want you. to be different, Mama. I want to he be like them. I want to be just like them. And he will punish you. <gasps> I will not let that come down upon you. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Carrie Retrospective Series. You have a big week coming up. A big month, actually. Probably the biggest month of your lives. Join Garrett. I have a dog. Matt. Turn around, drop trail. And Adam. Do they have anything good? Like some garbage? You like garbage? Oh yeah, Shirley Manson, she rocks. As they look at the four different iterations of Stephen King's very first published novel. This isn't over by a long shot. Come back periodically as one by one the boys go through each film adaptation of the popular author's work in the order of its original publication. That's great news! Where does everyone come down on the quality of King's work? They're just gonna trick me again. Why is Adam watching Carrie for the very first time? I don't want to upset you. And what is Matt dreading the most about this 100-plus movie retrospective. <laughs> Look at this! What? <laughs> All these pigs! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. And things are going to change around here. Carrie, originally broadcast November 4th, 2002. It was viewed by 12.2 million people because this isn't a theatrical release. This is a TV movie that we're talking about today. Yes, in the history of the binge aftertaste, we have never talked about a TV movie. I have made it a point to say, yes, Matt, only theatrical releases is what we're going to be covering. But when it comes to Stephen King, you have to talk about TV movies. And this is the first of many that we'll be talking about in this retrospective, directed by David Carson. I am once again joined by the very sunburnt Mr. Matthew Goudreau. What's up, Matt? It only took six years for us to break your one rule. I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner, to be perfectly honest. I am too, but it had to happen because this is a retrospective that you have to dig deep into, and we'll definitely dig deep into this one. And I'm joined by relative King Newbie, even though he grew up with somebody who loved this man growing up, the one and only Adam Bunch. What's up, Adam? Do we have to count the TV movies? Do we... You're going to break <laughs> your one rule. 
Do, do we have to? Three movies into this 100-plus movie retrospective, and you're already asking, <laughs> do we have to break the rule? Yes, Adam. Wait until we get about nine deep into Children of the Corn. Then you can really start questioning our motives and our meaning in life. For the love of God, baby steps, please. <laughs> uh, well, I'm like Stephen King. I want to focus on here and now, not what I have in the pipeline. All right. So let's talk about the here and now, shall we? 2002, King wasn't really in the stratosphere as much. You know, the fact that we're doing this retrospective in order of publication means we're going to be jumping around a bit with some of these releases, some of these adaptations. And The Rage Carry 2 came out. The three of us kind of liked it, but it wasn't really well received by the public or by critics. And around 2002, there's a man by the name of Brian Fuller, who is very well known for bringing serial killers to screen. At least now he is. Back in 2002, he wasn't. He got tapped because he did the very well-received, very well-looked-upon Hannibal's TV series. He scripted a uh, adaptation of King's first novel. I did see this the night it was out. I did make a point to sit down because at this point, there was no DVR. There was nothing out to say, okay, I just watched this later. I made a point. It was, I, I believe it was a Monday night. I sat and I watched this entire fucking thing in 2002 even though I had to work in the morning. And I will definitely talk about that experience, especially the end of that experience as we get into the movie. Matt, were you at all familiar with this adaptation before we started this retrospective? My familiarity was only by the fact that I knew it existed. I have never seen this before going into this first viewing for this particular show. And the Brian Fuller connection, I had no idea he was involved in this. And I also didn't know that Angela Bettis was the star in this. Because it was a TV movie, I never found the need to sort it out. And it's pretty tough to find a hard copy, especially DVD. I don't think there's a Blu-ray release. So I've never gone out of my way when trying to seek this out. So I'm not going to tell you I was looking forward to watching this. I put a check mark next to it for completionist purposes. But in all actuality, this was not one of the Stephen King projects that you could have forced me to do and I would have said, all right, let's do it. This one was more like, oh God, it's like the 12 labors of Hercules. It just fucking exists. So I have to get it done with. Well, that's interesting you say that because you're a big proponent of Brian Fuller. You were the one who pushed me to watch the Hannibal TV series when we were doing that retrospective. You really like the man's work. I believe you like Pushing Daisies too, don't you? And he did a lot of work on Star Trek Voyager before yeah. mm-hmm. this. And speaking of which, the director of this, David... Carson, he directed one of the... He did Generations. It was the first movie of the TNG cast. Not a lot of promise in that department since I'm not a huge fan of that movie. In fact, I don't think I'm a fan whatsoever of it, to be perfectly honest. Although I will say it's not the worst of the TNG movies. They're one for four in that department. There's one good one and three shitty ones. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm a pretty big Brian Fuller fan. Pushing Daisies was kind of my... That and Voyager were kind of my ends, and then Hannibal sort of came afterwards, and unfortunately, he's been involved a little bit in Star Trek Discovery, but you can tell he's more of a consultant than a writer, because that show is just maybe the worst thing Star Trek has ever produced, and that's saying a lot as someone who <laughs> everything that has come out of that brand. So the, the best mm. thing about this movie, this TV movie, is that I get to talk about Star Trek, which I've never been able to do since I was not on that particular retrospective. All right, Adam, 
Mr. Newbie to Stephen King here. How familiar were you about this movie? I mean, if you didn't know about The Rage Carry 2, you probably had zero <laughs> clue. In fact, you did have zero clue because you thought we were only going to do the Sissy Spacek movie and the remake, correct? Thinking and kind of hoping as well. <laughs> I think I remember that this existed somewhere in my mind, and that's about it. But picking up after Matt, the two big names that we have involved with this, I'm at least pretty familiar with their other work. Brian Fuller, obviously for a whole lot of things. Matt mentioned, you know, his work on Star Trek. American Gods is something that I've watched quite a bit of. Mockingbird Lane, Heroes. He also wrote a little, very little known adaptation of one of my favorite Mike Mignola works, uh, The Amazing Screw on Head, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a character with a screw on head. You could find it is a uh, pilot animated movie that was supposed to be a series. Phenomenal idea that just would really work now, didn't work then. But the director, David Carson, is somebody who, you know, when I was looking through this and writing notes and looking up, I'm like, okay, what am I familiar with this guy's work? And, I, and it goes back and I'm like, well, Star Trek, you know, The Next Generation, 90210, Garrett, you know my love of 90210, yep. Doogie Howser, um, Witch, yep, Witchblade, which I watched Smallville. all of, Smallville, Smallville, which mm. you're a huge fan of. I've only yes. seen bits and pieces of, but Birds of Prey, the UPN series <laughs> that I was a big mm. fan of. So I'm amazingly familiar with the amount of work that this director has done, how that translates into a movie-length feature of Stephen King. We're here to discuss, but I'm at least familiar with the people involved in it. Yeah, and Fuller's name has been, at the time we were recording this, news has come out in the last couple weeks or so that Mr. Fuller will be connected to Stephen King once again. He's going to be adapting Christine. So uh, hopefully that set of movies is out around the time that we actually go through this retrospective. But, you know, to go off what you guys were saying, you know, about Fuller, everything you guys had mentioned that he had done, except for maybe that <laughs> screwhead movie that you mentioned, Adam, <laughs> I have heard many many interviews with Brian Fuller over the years. And he does a lot of talking about a lot of things you guys were talking about. But one thing he never mentions is this movie. And I scoured the internet looking for podcasts where he is interviewed and talking about this. And he doesn't never, ever, ever talks about it. So I don't know if this is something he's trying to put behind him, if it's something that he refuses to talk about, if it was something that the network kind of took and twisted his vision, even though this is pretty much the book with a few things twisted here and there. But he doesn't talk about this. So I found that interesting as I was going through and thinking, you know, maybe I'll find something where Fuller's talking about what it was like adapting Stephen King first. Maybe we'll see that, you know, as Christine gets closer and closer, but he does not talk about this project at all. And I guess there might be a reason why. So I was curious to go through this, Adam, just because I wanted to get your outlook on this. Because again, you didn't have any idea this even existed, except for little inklings here and there. And so after watching that first movie and giving it pretty high marks and watching the second movie, giving it decent marks, I was hoping going in, I hadn't seen this in a long time, probably since its original release, actually. I was hoping going in that maybe, just maybe, for everybody's sake, this was better than I remembered. All right, boys. Let's go ahead, just jump right in. I, I have a feeling we've covered this story before, but... So we're hearing the crying of a baby. There's a step outside, and we see some rocks flying overhead, and the title. This is a lot to fit into a title card, wouldn't you guys say? I mean, we're already seeing things that De Palma wanted to include in that original movie. These rocks, like I said in that first podcast, this was in the book, and he wanted to include these in that adaptation, but he didn't like the effects. Maybe Mr. Carson should have turned down these effects, too, because these rock effects are pretty bad. <laughs> You know, it's amazing. The uh, the rocks here at the very beginning with the credits coming on, 
looks exactly like the uh, meteor shower in Smallville. <laughs> very <laughs> wow. Right? Those are better than these. I mean, come on, man. These well, these look like they were just pumped yeah, but, out in a in a CGI shop two weeks before this thing was aired. <laughs> they probably were. I was struck because you both have mentioned that that was a part of the book and everybody wanted to pay, figure out a way to work him in. And when I saw him here with putting title, I'm like, hey, they got their rocks, meteor shower, whatever it is. And I wonder if it'll play later. But I was my first note was, hey, they got their rocks. And you know, you know what else this proves to to me anyway. And we're, we're going to see this. Pretty soon in this retrospective, in feature film adaptations, as opposed to TV adaptations where you have more time, you have to cut things out that make things better. This was something you did not need to include. So I have a golden rule when it comes to adaptations, and this really started for me when we were talking about Harry Potter, in that just because text exists in a page and is relevant within the context of a book does not mean you should obligatorily translate it to the screen. Unless you know this is a component of the book, you're going to be off-put almost immediately because this has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. You would think this is almost like an alien invasion story or it's going to be like Armageddon or some other disaster movie. I mean, this is a disaster, but in other ways outside (laughs) of... That don't leave the atmosphere. And that's kind of my problem with this in general is that I don't know... Well, I know this movie was made for a UPN or CW audience. There are parts of this movie that make the OC look like Emmy-worthy acting. But it does service to the book in that it is from there. But without the context, it's not consistent with the rest of the movie. I always talk about with Order of the Phoenix. They truncated that book. They trimmed the fat completely because they focused on the story at heart and kind of cut out all the superfluous stuff that doesn't matter in the grand scheme. Here, I kind of wish they did that. And to be honest, when I looked at this 130-plus minute runtime, mm. it was kind of a daunting task. I think I spent less time reading the book from front end to back end than I would watch <laughs> the movie. Like, this is not... People forget, because this is King's first book, it's not especially long. It is not something you could kill someone with, like, most of his collection <laughs> on my back shelf. <laughs> Or the no, book Garrett Spina Bifida in high school. This is definitely one of his least amount of pages in this thing. It's definitely uh, one of his smaller books. And like I said, I mean, I read it cover to cover back in February. It's a very brisk read. And you take that and you put it into a two hours plus TV film like we're going to talk about. And let's just say things get a little stretched in this thing. <laughs> we cut to David Keith. He has King Connections. We'll talk about Firestarter in the next few years, at least. Here he is. Kind of weird seeing him here. Definitely, if you go back even further, you know, the officer and gentleman, obviously. But mm-hmm. he's pretty much the most recognizable name here. He gets introduced in the weirdest manner. And my God, Brian Fuller is known for his tremendous script writing. And I swear to God to you, Adam, there is no weird rant about donuts being similar to heroin in the Stephen King prose. (laughs) What a fucking introduction. My God, was this bizarre. You know what? Knowing Stephen King's penchant for um, various substances, I didn't know if a glazed donut was a different type of euphemism (laughs) they were trying to attach. But yeah, it felt strange. Well, don't you have to use a syringe in order to get the jelly into a donut? Oh, there you go. There you go. (laughs) So I I was first put off because I swear to God, I thought this was Robert Wall who was doing the the detective. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a 
six-foot bat throwing meteors in Castle Rock? Correct me if I'm wrong. This framing device has also had the book is structured, right? Pretty much. As I mentioned in the first podcast, the book is pretty much broken up into an unreliable narrator and clips of news articles and such and Sue Snell's book. So everything is clipped and this is more of how that book is structured so this awful opening dissertation notwithstanding i don't feel this is a bad way to go especially if you're wanting to separate yourself from the palma work yeah this is one way that they differentiate itself although i don't think they took into account the fact that there may be a considerable amount of people watching this that do not have any recollection of the book or the movie that's at least 25 years old at this point. So they're just watching this because they have no idea what it is. Not that it's building up to something really horrific. For all they know, it could be a murder mystery. It's not like she's missing for arson. And all I can think of when I see this green interrogation room is the fucking Matrix. Yeah, I thought that It's that same tint. It's that Mm -hmm. same color palette. It might even be the same goddamn table. Adam hit it right on the head. This was aired on NBC, and we were in the midst of Buffy. We were in the midst of Smallville. They were trying to grab that audience. And when you have a bunch of these girls being interrogated by a cop like this, you're going to alienate not only the people who have read the book, but also people who haven't read it if they're coming in for the very first time. So David Key's talking to Sue Snell, who starts us off by saying how big of an introvert Carrie is. And in looking at her, we can see that, as played by Angela Bettis, yeah, she's a bit odd-looking, but SpaceX played that role like somebody who was literally hated by everybody. Here, she's just kind of an outcast. I didn't find her to be as badly looked upon as she was in that first film. What about you guys? How do you feel about the Angela Bettis portrayal of this character? I liked it better when I saw it in May. Yes, I was it, getting to that. Yeah. It's impossible for me to separate these two performances because they're so similar. But I, I've seen May considerably more as a outcast because the movie also deals with trauma. She's a lonely outsider who desperately wants to connect with people. I actually think that's a better representation of the themes of Carrie than this particular depiction. I think she's perfectly adequate, but unfortunately it's too similar to stuff I've already seen her do. Yeah, for people who don't know, May is this little horror film from back in, uh, I believe it was 2000, 2001. I blindly bought it one time because it had a quote from Wes Craven of all people. He was praising it on the cover of this movie and I was like, hmm, Wes Craven doesn't talk about any movie. Let me check this out. And it is a quirky little film. It's basically about an introvert who pretty much puts together her best friend. She takes the best parts of her friends and she makes it into pretty much her own friend. Really quirky little film. I highly recommend it. It's something that really took me by surprise. But this was something that the people who made this movie they did look see that movie and think wow, there's our carrier right there. But you're right, Matt. She's not playing it different enough for me. I think she's trying to, but it doesn't really come off that well. The way that it, it lies for me, and, and Matt kind of nailed it, is, you know, she's adequate, but he liked her better in May. As someone who hasn't seen May, I like what she's doing with it. To me, it feels that the character is portrayed a little more naturally in school than we saw with Sissy Spacek, mm-hmm. where that one's kind of seemed to be an extreme version of that character, where this one's not quite so off the edge at the beginning. So I could appreciate that fact that it wasn't going, you know, full-blown, like, psychotic school right from the get-go. So Carrie's getting made fun of until Tommy gets a hold of a book and blasts this guy right in the eye. 
We cut to a softball game and see that this time Jim is being taught by Rena Sofer. And between Melrose Place and 24, I haven't not been able to watch something without this broad being in it. She's playing uh, Miss <laughs> D. Jordan, which is the name of the teacher in the book. Last time it was Mrs. Collins. Different interpretation, I guess, but I don't know. Rena Sofer, I'm just, I'm not a big fan of her. She's just a literal TV actress. Not much more, not much less. I know her specifically and almost exclusively from Once Upon a Time. Um, oh, yeah. And I liked her there, so because of my fondness for her and that character, I could go along with her. She was kind of my in. She was the person that I could at least follow along on this more than most others. But is it natural for girls softball to be hiking their shirts up and tying them into crop tops and wearing shorts so they get raspberries on their legs sliding around during school? <sighs> I never saw it okay. happen, but this was out six I'm years. I complain about it's going to be <laughs> girls' <laughs> pee but... This was six years after we graduated, sir, so I don't know. It's like window dressing a lot of the changes in this movie. It's doing it just for the sake of differentiation. So you can change the hubcaps, and you can put in a lot of money on new rims, but at the end of the day, it's the same model of a car. It can't escape the shadow of DePaul, no matter how much it tries. And, God, so many of these performances from these kids... I gotta look at my notes. I think the words I directly used are, and I quote, fucking terrible. Yeah, fucking terrible. I think that's what I wrote for a lot of these actors. And I've seen a good chunk of them do much better work, but mm-hmm. if, I think 90210 is a very amicable comparison, if you ask me, because that's what it feels like I'm watching a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. It's acted and kind of shot just like that late night, Wednesday, Thursday melodrama shit that you'd get on TV. Not even 90210 quality, Melrose Place. Yeah, this might as well be like The Hills. And it stems everything from the dialogue to the acting to the soundtrack. It, it <laughs> And then once again, we got a group of 20-somethings playing teenagers. <laughs> Somebody mentioned it earlier, but goddamn, the look of this thing. There's a reason why you can't get this thing on Blu-ray, because everything's washed out. It's got a really bad TV look to it. This was before the golden generation of TV, right? This is before AMC and all these networks mm-hmm. were catching on and pretty much making TV worthy of movies. This was before that, and it looks it. This does not have an exciting look to it. It's pretty bad production quality, too. You notice all the Dutch angles, too. Yes, definitely. Big surprise as Carrie loses the game for her team. And as she's in the shower, she gets the famous blood scene, a scene I did not envy these people to have to recreate, honestly, especially for a TV movie. But Carrie freaks out about it, and the other girls make their way in only to chant period after her. But Miss Jordan, she comes in, clears out the shower, and calms down Carrie as she's freaking out, and she takes out a light. My favorite part of this entire thing, I'm going to go ahead and pay this thing a compliment, boys. I liked when she looked at Dave Jordan and she's just asking, am I dying? That was something that kind of hit me a little bit as I was watching this. But other than that, again, we saw this already, right? We have but one stylistic approach as far as the way the scene is blocked that I like is how she's in her own private stall and everyone's standing over her. Yeah. Almost like they're on benches peeking over the top of the wall, so it feels like she's even smaller than she actually is. That's one stylistic thing that I do actually really like in this movie. We cut to Jordan and the principal, who are discussing how to discipline the other girls. And once again, these principals, they cannot pronounce Carrie's name right, can they? <laughs> this time, uh, Carrie's frustration takes on a bigger frame as the desk pounds against the wall. So her powers, as she gets a little more angry, a little more emotional, get a little more powerful. 
So Carrie's sent home, and Carson's sure to point out Carrie's surroundings as she walks through the hallway. Then she gets to her locker, which says, plug it up. And she opens it to have a bunch of tampons fly out and everybody to laugh at her. Again, different approach, I would say. Instead of everybody pelting her with it, they're just stuffing her locker. But when you start doing shit like this, you just get to a point, And again, this is what's going to happen with remakes. And we're definitely going to talk about this next week. What the fuck is the point? Yeah, you got a decision to make. You either go the psycho route and you reshoot it shot for shot or you do something different. But this isn't different. You know, Matt said it. It's your you know, making little changes just for little changes. I appreciate enough that it said plug it up. Simple little callback because of them throwing it and chanting that before. But it's just we know the beat, and the only thing is where's that beat going to hit? What note is the beat going to hit on? Because you know every step of the way what they are going to do. My question was just how did they find out her locker combination? No teacher saw them, no, no teacher saw them filling up her locker with tampons. Yeah, the logistics of it just don't make any sense, do they? No, that's more unbelievable than the meteor shower at the opening of this movie. Something interesting, uh, we were talking about the actors and actresses in this. Matt, we covered one of the actresses in this before. <laughs> we did Freddy vs. Jason. Catherine Isabel's here. Of course, at this point, she was known from the Ginger Snaps movies. That was how I knew her. But I completely forgot that she was here. That's actually the third movie of Catherine Isabel's, because she's also in Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. Oh, that's right. Ooh. God, that's right. I've completely forgot about that. Good call. Yeah, because that movie sucks. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> Same year as this, by the way. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that she's kind of like uh, almost becoming a regular on this show, as is, speaking of people I know, Emily DeRaven. I know, speaking of big TV stars, I know her from Lost. Also know her from Once Upon a Time. So it's funny how many little cross sections and... She also did a really bad movie called um, Santa's Sleigh with Bill Goldberg. I don't know if you ever saw that. Jesus oh, Christ, she's shit. in that? Yeah, she, she's one of the main characters. And she's also one of the main characters in the, the Hills of Eyes remake, which I love. We'll get to that eventually. That's definitely one I want to cover eventually. We get a recreation of the kid on the bike scene. Sorry. It's not just the fact that she telekinetically causes the bike to tilt. She launches him into a tree. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of Freddy versus Jason, when what's her name gets knocked into the tree. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kelly Rowland, I think. Yep. So this time, Margaret Wright is played by Patricia Clarkson. She takes a lower end approach, I think. While Piper Laurie played it much bigger, Patricia Clarkson's playing it a little more calm. What do you guys think about Patricia Clarkson's portrayal of Margaret White in this? Never been so excited about a casting choice on paper and then been so disappointed with how it was executed. If we're going for the person who gives some of the silliest reads, I think it's her. Because she's supposed to be purposely almost like a Puritan level of Catholic. The part later on, the fake Google search, and she's like, the internet? She doesn't know yeah. where it, it, it even exists. When she's yelling at her to go in the closet and pray, it doesn't come from a place of abuse. It feels like you're that parent who gets stuck with the kid on weekends. You just want nothing to do with them. That's more of the ad it feels like. I appreciate it's toned down, which is surprising because Patricia Clarkson, she has a pretty extensive stage background. So mm. I'd expect it a little bit bigger, especially because everyone else, aside from Angela Bettis, is just going for broke, for better, for worse, mostly for the latter. I'm not ecstatic at this depiction. She also has a Stephen King connection because she's in The Green Mile. Oh, that's right. Jesus Christ. Yeah. We're going to be seeing a lot of these actors multiple times. Matt kind of said it. It looks really good on paper. And to tie it into a different movie and reference it that way, so did another movie that she was in called Dogville. 
looked great on paper and ended up being shit on screen. And that's kind of how this one goes. I understand she's got to play it differently because you're not going to match the manicness that we got in the original Carrie. And parts of it I appreciate because it's a little more natural seems a funny word, but it comes across a little more realistic than what we had. But it's just there. She's there. She's in the role. And that character is here because the character has to be here. And that's it. That's the only purpose is because it has to be. Day Jordan, she uh, warns the other girls about making fun of Carrie anymore. And she ends up saying the next punishment is three days suspension and refusal of their prom privilege. Carrie, meanwhile, has been studying about telekinesis. And if I thought the black and white from Cat Shea was bad, this movie's way of dealing with flashbacks is even worse. A little odd, wouldn't you guys say? Well, the transitions are fucking terrible yeah. as far as how they, they segue into them. There's no rhyme or reason. It just feels like, okay, these were in the book, so we've got to find a way to put them in almost in the exact spots that they're in the book. It's not like front-loading it or moving pieces around to reflect current events. It just, God, I, I don't think any of these flashbacks work. I wonder if they felt obligated to do it considering that the one with her is a little girl and the neighbor that's not in the De Palma film at all, so they felt like they had to do it, separate mm-hmm. themselves. And that could have been a really great... I probably would have opened the movie with that, to be perfectly honest, because that, you know, that's exclusively about womanhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the period scene, that'd be a good way to kind of put those together. But because this movie's edited by Edward Scissorhands, there's no good transitions <laughs> at all. Left wondering, like, okay, why did you make these decisions to put certain scenes here and not spread them out more? That's a really good point, because that flashback scene with the neighbor is one of the scenes that I like the scene and I like what it does. But, yeah, it's ham-fisted in. And if you open it that way, you could have set up Carrie and her ignorance, and you could have set up that relationship with the mother. And that's a damn good point. You could have done so much by putting that at the beginning. I think they're kind of slavish to – they're not adapting. They're kind of just putting what's in the book on screen and – Sometimes King has to be adapted by somebody who's got the balls to rewrite his shit if it's going to go on the screen, and I don't think they're doing that here. To quote an upcoming King adaptation we'll get to in the coming years, sometimes dead is better. Just leave it alone. We cut to Chris's dad, who threatens to sue if Chris can't go to the prom. This is actually something that was from the book that wasn't included in De Palma's depiction, but again, there's a oh, reason sure. why Are you it serious? wasn't. Yeah, it was. This is taken completely from his prose. Wow. Um, My note on here is, this serves no purpose and must have been included just to pad the runtime. <laughs> no. <laughs> commercial break. No. Wow. No. You're exactly right. It just proves. Sometimes you just leave it on the fucking floor. Don't include it, because you're right, it doesn't serve any goddamn purpose. We're seeing the severing of the friendship between Chris and Sue because Sue wants to make what she did right by helping Carrie, and Chris just wants to tear her down. But here's the thing. In that first movie, and yes, we're going to be making a lot of comparisons. Get used to it, people, because we're going to be doing it next week as well. You have no choice when you're talking about different adaptations done of the same book. Wasn't the separation between Chris and Sue more clean last time than this time? I don't get these two losing the friendship as much as I did last time. So Carrie's still working on her powers. This time on a hairbrush, though this goes horribly wrong and she ends up lifting everything in the room. Again, this is exactly from the book. I like this addition of watching her, you know, kind of understand and practicing as opposed to just being traumatized and ignoring it. It feels more like something we have now. You know, somebody at least trying to explore it, to reach out. It's the mutant version of it. It's I'm going to test out my powers and see what I could do. So from that aspect, being that we go from zero to 100 by the end of the movie, I like to see that she's at least willing to toy around with it and figure herself out. Yeah. Is anyone else getting uh, callbacks to Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie? 
Oh, Definitely. Yeah. I got a lot of superhero callbacks, actually, while watching this. Because let's face it, Carrie at this point is a superhero, right? I mean, she's learning how to use her power. She's using how to, she's learning how to cage them and unleash them when needed. Yeah, this was a huge thought that was going through my mind as I was watching this. So Tommy doesn't want to take Carrie to the prom because it seems like something his hero, Freddie Prince Jr., would do, and she's all that. <laughs> he's also dirty, and he's accused of pedophilia when he walks in the door. <laughs> Hey, you know what? Anytime you go back to that movie, I'm going to be all four. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's what I I put it. Brian Fuller put that line in there just for Garrett to talk about (laughs) fucking 20 years later. And they mention it like three or four times in this, so it's not it's not subtle. Put that in perspective, though. This movie is 20 years old, and it's making a reference to She's All That, which came out even longer ago. Go fuck yourself with that comment. <laughs> now, I did like William Katz, kind of dopey Tommy in that first film, but I'll go ahead and say that I like this Tommy a lot as well. Matt, I get the feeling that you don't really like him in this. He, he does a good job. He's the, the closest to a character in this movie as far as being mm. left-headed, but again, he reminds me a lot of, to, to use a to use an OC comparison, he, he's got like an Adam Brody quality where I like him, but... Mm-hmm. I don't think he's got a lot to him, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah. he's just... And with a two-hour runtime, he really should be the character that's given more impetus or more backstory to explain why he's willing to, you know, quote-unquote, do the right thing. I was good with him, and I liked William Cat quite a bit. I thought he could be one of the greatest American heroes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make that joke every fucking time. Sorry, folks. But <laughs> but I like this, Tommy. You know, with with Cat, I the way that it was played... At the end, I was waiting for him to maybe be in on it or turn a little bit. This Tommy, I feel like, is just a kind of a genuinely nice guy. You actually see him sticking up for people throughout the movie. So even with the crew and stuff that he's on, he's not so goody two-shoes that he's fucking sparkling and shit. But he's not, I don't know, there's not a question to him. He's just, he's a decent guy. And he's believable as a decent guy more than we've gotten so far. More so than William Cat, really? William Cat is just perfect there but he wouldn't fit in this movie and this Tommy yeah. wouldn't fit in that one either That's this Tommy point. there would feel yeah. completely out of place but in this one yeah so Carrie succumbs to the pressure since this is once again the last day to buy tickets and Chris and her gang they walk in at the end of the conversation so it's on right now David Keith brings up the theory that Chris and Sue conspired to get rid of Carrie through a plan by the two of them but Chris swears that she hadn't been talking to sue at all carrie tells her mom that she got invited to prom and when her mom says that she's not going to go margaret gets up and walks into a lot of the kitchen furniture that carrie can now control so Mm -hmm. in that last film margaret white was so manic that carrie feared her and margaret white pretty much became a villain that she had to defeat by the end of that film here carrie's more powerful and i'm not sure if that works for the pros that they're trying to tell here i I think the palma played it right where the mom was so damn scary that you feared for carrie as well as everybody around her towards the end of that film just a different approach the whole power struggle is completely reversed she Mm -hmm. never feels to love her mother like she really should be and you as the audience should be so yeah i feel like they kind of lost the purpose of what king was trying to say about you know overbearing parents and having to overcome that in addition to your own adolescent growth yeah king has never come out for or against this movie he did say about the last film that the one thing he did like better was how travolta approached billy as opposed to how he wrote it and we'll definitely get to billy in this one later 
later. I have some things to say. But he's never come out for and against. But I would assume that he would be right on your side, Matt, where that power struggle is pretty much gone in this. I know I'm going to be a little alone on this. I actually liked seeing this here. One of my issues that I had with the first one is that it seemed that Carrie gets really a very quick change only at the very end of the movie, and I wish that I'd seen it develop a little bit more throughout. That was just me. And here I see that I feel like she's, maybe it's just because the switch is happening earlier, but I see her changing already and morphing into the character we're going to get by the end of it. So I'm happy to see that. It's a change, but the mother's already a different kind of character, so this I actually like. Matt, get used to this, dude. He's going to be ripping on the feature film versions and going for the TV versions. I'm telling you, <laughs> get ready for some fights. They're coming. I've already been <laughs> an argument about sleepwalkers for the year 2026. So, <laughs> oh, oh. oh boy, you're being optimistic. If they ever decide that, if they ever decide they're remaking that movie, I'm fucking out. <laughs> <laughs> this is when we find out about the clique known as the Ultras. Now, this is something added for this movie. Again, it just seems more click-based here as opposed to everybody against Carrie that we saw before. It felt very news headline, you know, kind of way that it would be. But mm. before, I didn't need the entire school being against her. I also didn't need it being so on the nose about this ultra click. Oh, you mean the mean girls? Like I was having sex Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Actually, not Rachel McAdams, if she walked in, it would not have surprised me whatsoever. But... It doesn't add anything. It's frosting on a cake, but you cook the cake 10 minutes longer than you should have. Chris walks in on Carrie talking on the phone and warns Carrie to not let Sue turn her into one of her quote-unquote projects. Chris runs into Carrie in the store and helps her with her makeup, saying that she's really glad she's going to the prom, and Carrie says she wishes she was going to prom not because someone felt sorry for her, but because they actually wanted to. So we're seeing some conflict here within Carrie and more interaction with these people than we saw last time because, you know, we have to stretch this out over two hours, boys. <laughs> <laughs> but the plan is in motion as Tina has ballots with Tommy and Carrie on them now, and Margaret starts reading Carrie verses as she prepares for the prom. We cut to David Keith interviewing one of Billy's friends, who at first denies the idea of being at a pig farm late at night. But when David Keith produces pictures, we start seeing how they slaughtered the pigs. And this portrayal of a mean-faced Billy, as opposed to how Travolta portrayed him in that other film, is just straight-up laughable. He wants to be fucking Jack Nicholson so bad. With these little sneers. Oh my god. This was the portrayal where I was just like, are, are you fucking kidding me with this? How the hell did this fucking kid get this gig? He went for Jack Nicholson and settled on Christian Slater. Oh, <laughs> I like Christian like, Slater. I do too, but th this guy is so fucking bad. Not since Costas Mandalore and the Saw movies have I watched an actor in a horror movie just... <laughs> He's so fucking egregiously awful that words cannot compare. He gets so many close-up shots of him yes. sniveling. He might as well have devil horns with the way that he's... <laughs> like, it's so bad, and I can't quantify any of the decisions that were made about this character. It's just... It, it's so bad. Maybe the worst thing about this movie is that guy and his performance, mm -hmm. just making him evil incarnate. Never saw this guy again. I don't know if he worked again. I didn't check his IMDb, but I, I hope he didn't because, my God, this is just so fucking bad. And that means Adam's going to like it. Go, Adam. One, Matt, I wish I could give you a hug and a kiss for being the only other person that's going to rip Costas Mandalore in those fucking Saw movies, so thank you very much. Because <laughs> I love Saw, but I hate him in those movies. <laughs> Two, 
What I see is this very talented actor trying to reach for Jack Nicholson and ending up as Scott fucking Farkas from A Christmas Story. <laughs> I cannot stand this portrayal. It bugs the shit out of me. That sneer, the leer, the fucking cock in his head to the side like a confused yeah. dog. He seems like just some piece of shit college dropout preying on high school girls. He's Farkas grown up is what I got out of him. Ugh, mm. such a it, it no so, it, of all the things that are bad in this movie he's right there with a the fucking meteor shower yeah and he gets some close-ups Farkas. too and they're rotating on his face and everything it's just bad carrie's powers are once again on display as her mom starts quoting verses and in frustration she moves her out of her room with her mind even yelling for her to watch her fingers as she leaves now i understand the idea that we need to see carrie develop these powers for what happens at the end but again if she's so strong she can already move her mom around at will i don't know i am just i'm just not going with this it, it just I, I, we talked about it earlier but this is just a different approach that i just didn't go with so we are an hour and 11 minutes in boys and look at this it is time for prom, which means we still have over an hour to go. <laughs> by this point, I want to be blown away by this prom. I should feel like I'm going to this prom and should just be blown away by what I'm about to see. Because whenever people adapt Batman, they always want to do their own depiction of his parents getting shot. That's the hallmark moment of this property. So they better fucking deliver is what I keep telling myself. Otherwise, I'm going to I'm gonna turn it off and just claim that I finished it. <laughs> Uh, that's a warning for future podcasts, I think. Uh, I'm writing that down as a note. Turn it off. See, I, watch. <laughs> I was struck that at least time-wise, I'm looking at how much is left, and I was shocked because I'm like, okay. I was surprised that the original Carrie had so much time still remaining once they got to prom, and this one isn't too far off of that. Yeah. This fucker yeah, That is... movie was only 95 minutes or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> this fucker is so goddamn stretched. It's ridiculous. There are times when I wish they could have taken the De Palma approach. Just fuck it. Just go ahead and take the approach of actors coming in and fast motion and them quickening the film. Like, I was wishing for that to happen in some of these moments. So Tommy picks her up, and there is some joy in her face as she gets in the car, and Tommy tells her that she looks beautiful. But wouldn't you know it, there's Margaret watching from the bushes like Mike Myers. <laughs> and, of course, the this is when they cut the commercial, too, which is always laughable. I, th I, I think we talked about it in one of our Lord of the Rings retrospectives in those Rankin-Bass films. There are times when you can tell when they cut to commercial, and yeah, this is quite a tease, isn't it? I half expected her to sneak in the trunk and follow them to prom with the way this is shot. <laughs> yeah. She might as well be Cruella DeVille following them in her decked-out Maserati. <laughs> <laughs> So Billy's in bed with Chris, and they talk about how good of a joke this will be. And Billy says, pig's blood for a pig, which begs the question, why not cast somebody who is overweight like in the book? This pig's blood for a pig line, it bears no weight because they pretty much went with a carbon copy of SpaceX this time. If you would have gone with King's Vision, maybe this would have worked a little more for me. And yeah, this is mm -hmm. a weird nitpick. I understand that. But it works in the book because it is an overweight person. It doesn't work here because she's not overweight. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about with directly translating without understanding the context as to why. Yeah, Matt's got it exactly right there. They're translating the words and not the meaning behind it as to why they wouldn't do so, because they need to make the character 
sympathetic before they turn her into a mass murderer. And as fucking shitty as it is, if you have the slightest bit of a realistic body tone, you're not going to get the sympathy you want out of your audience. As fucked up as that is, that'll be the reason. And they definitely need to make her sympathetic, especially considering where they take her at the end of this. But we'll get there, boys. Carrie and Billy, they pull up to the prom, and Carrie starts making comparisons to Pygmalion. And I do actually kind of enjoy this conversation until he walks around and lets her out saying sue said she would cut off his boys if he wasn't a perfect gentleman this was going okay and then when this shit goes on i'm like oh god here we go (laughs) and not to mention his tv restrictions too so of course he can't say she'll cut off my dick if i do no he's got to say boys and it just uh, so weird billy is once again giving his sneer saying if she fucks it up he will kill her he will literally kill her if she fucks this (sighs) joke up this is where the Stephen King bullies. Yeah. This feels yeah. like the most translation where in so many of his books, the bullies are just straight up masochists. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about this when we get to the it translations once I have three kids by that point. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a problem I have with, with a lot of his stories is that his bully characters, they would not exist in modern society. Like, you could have the worst childhood possible and still not be as reprehensible as some of these bullies are. Yep. So Carrie is now in the prom, and she's getting complimented on her dress and her ass, and she doesn't take these compliments very well. What ass? I'm a gay man, and I'm asking that. (laughs) Line without a purpose. Jesus, fuck. You're not kidding. And this isn't in the book, by the way. It's not like they literally translated this. This was literally added for this film, and it's like... No, no. In 2002, that's the kind of line they would make now to show that, oh, you know, it's okay for everybody to be attracted to everybody regardless of sex. Fucking 20 years ago, this line, okay. (laughs) Speaking of that film from 20 years ago, I felt in the moment, especially when Tommy was dancing with Carrie, I was with them every step because that movie had a genuine feel to it. Here, it just feels like they're going through the motions. And at this point, we've joked about the runtime in this, but this is the point when I really started to feel it like, fuck, this thing is really starting to drag. I felt like that 15 minutes into the movie. (laughs) 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 This was one of the most, thinking of Saw, this was the most torturous. It's like, if I want to play a game, you have two hours to finish watching this movie. If you don't, your remote is going to electrocute you. Again, Matt, we're only three (laughs) movies in, dude. You say that. (laughs) for number 54 yeah well all those other ones i've pretty much seen this is one of the few blind spots i had no idea what i was getting into with seeing the dance and the dance itself i'm actually enjoying once we get here once we get inside i'm liking these scenes i have no problem once we're inside the prom at all oh boy adam you're seriously going with these you've seen these before i i'm going with i'm going with what they're giving me i just i'm not saying you know i'm i'm not I'm not putting it out there how much I love it on the internet. I'm just, okay. you know, compared <laughs> compared to what I saw before. And I had some issues with with the original Carrie and the way that the prom was depicted and, you know, that. It's just, this feels like a prom to me. This does feel like a high school dance to me. So when they're in there, the conversations, um, everything at the dance, I can go with. You know what really felt genuine to me? The only part that felt genuine to me in this entire section is when Jordan is uh, telling her the story about her own prom, concluding that nothing other than her 
grades matter after graduation day and that the girls who are pretty will be fat and the fat girls will be thin. Like all this felt kind of pretty genuine to me. I did like this scene a lot, but that's the only compliment I can give it. Other than that, we're really just going through the motions here. It feels fucking real. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it definitely does. Like, My prom drag too, because I went with the next girlfriend, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> who Adam remembers very well. Uh, <laughs> Desjardins talking about how much nothing matters at a high school. To me, Stephen King's fucking cheering somewhere. He gets bullies being fucking sadistic, and whatever issues he had in high school, there's a character telling him that nothing's going to matter and that they could be a success. Like, yeah. to me, all everything, whenever it revolves around school, is Stephen King just not going to therapy and putting it on a fucking page. Yeah, I don't know what kids traumatized King when he was in, in middle school and high school, but I hope they're in witness protection right now. Oh, shit. And I think we're going to say that a lot, too. Yeah. Like, I think this is going to be a reoccurring yeah. thing. Day Jordan, she threatens Tommy that if he doesn't show her a good time, that she will make sure he's expelled. This seems like it's coming from the heart until she says to stick to the slow songs because they think fast and she'll look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Just... What an unintentional laugh I got. She's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why would you say something so brave yet something so right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carrie thanks Tommy for the nice night. As they slow dance, they sit down, and it is now time to vote for king and queen. Tommy suggests voting for themselves. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but you're on the edge of your seat, aren't you? Yeah, I picture Adam in his house with a top hat on, dressed like Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka, going, oh, the suspense is terrible. I hope it'll last. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Tommy suggests voting for themselves, to which somebody says, isn't that like voting for Ralph Nader? Oh, did this not age well? <laughs> uh, yeah, like... <laughs> You can definitely tell when this was made, not just because uh -huh. of the text that we're going to talk about for the next 40 minutes. But. Yep. <laughs> we cut to David Keith, who says that Frank and Jessica were the actual winners of the prom, and the ballots were switched, which is not from the book, by the way. Um, Carrie and Tommy are announced as the winners. As we cut to her mom, then back to Carrie as she's on stage. And again, while there was genuine tension over when the rope was going to be pulled last time, here I just want them to do it and be done with it. I mean, they're trying. Yeah. He's saying he knew that she was going to chicken out as they now move to the other part of the stage for the lead dance. They're trying to build the suspense, mm -hmm. but it's not working for me. Yeah, I mean, you're doing what you can when you are going to have to do the exact same thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. We know bucket of blood is going to drop on her head is there a way to make it more suspenseful yeah did they do a job at making it more suspenseful no they did not so it's just like you know what come on fucking get to it let's see her kick some ass kill some people because that's got to be the exciting part right right especially in 2002 nbc tv let's get to it so yeah they do something a little different here where she sees a drop of blood land on tommy's hand so she knows that oh boy i didn't even intend this to happen she knows something is up, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. Fucking spider sense should have gone off. <laughs> but she cannot expect it to be a bucket of CGI pig's blood, which lands on her head, perfectly separates her eyes, by the way, as the bucket lands and knocks Tommy out. Here is when the laughter starts, the screen distorts, and the rampage begins. Last time, De Palma had split screen. 
That's not here this time. This isn't bad for network TV level violence, and there are times it does look like there is fire in the same room as the people getting burned up, which I wasn't expecting actually, but the basketball hoop death seemed a little too CGI for me. This mostly looked to me like a rave gone bad. <laughs> and Carrie, this is exactly what the movie fucking took off for me. I was reinvigorated. I was into that movie from there till the fucking end. Go back and listen to it because it hooked me and I was back in. Right here, I feel like I'm playing The Sims and the whole thing has gone fucking wonky. It looks like crap. It's shot like crap. She's just standing there fucking twitching. I can't believe how unexciting, how uninspired, and just boring watching these multiple deaths are. You mentioned how De Palma used split screen for his depiction of the prom scene. I used the side splits because I almost fell out of my chair. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> at, at the people pantomiming being electrocuted when there's no... For God's sake, like they could have at least afforded some Palpatine Force Lightning. Yeah. Um, that, that's the tone. And the, I thought it was pretty cool when one of them gets killed by the, like the backboard. I, yeah. I would have liked, you know, a, a pun about nice free throw or some kind of clever Brian Fuller writing. There's no claustrophobia in this scene. Nobody really feels that trapped or confined. And unlike the Palmas version, mm, they're running around actually pretty fucking free. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all this version with the split screen is designed to keep track of everybody. Here, they use just standard wide shots, so you don't really lose anybody. But the problem is there's so many fucking people mm. in this that I don't know who's who's dying, who, who's getting killed. Did that guy actually die or what? Because he just fell off a, a gym line. It's chaotic, but it's, the, it's like a distracting form of chaos rather than, oh, shit, just hit the fan kind of unnerving energy that it should create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got all the tension of fucking G.I. Joe. Did they actually just maybe get knocked out, not killed? Like, it's, there's no intensity to it. So Carrie walks out of the school in a pretty bad shot when that thing, when that school explodes behind her. That's, a, that's not a good shot. My first thought was that would have been a better way to do it. If she could have trapped everybody, found a way to even freeze them or something that way, walk out, slam the doors, and blow up the fucking building with everybody inside... It would have been a change, and it could have been an oh-shit moment. But, oh, my God, this is boring. Yeah, that's, it's interesting that it's just had the complete opposite effect on you this time as opposed to the 76 version, where the 76 version reinvigorated you, and here you're just you're, you're about you're about to walk out on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Sue tells David Keith that, and I know he has a character name, but I just know him as David Keith. I'll be doing that during Firestarter 2, <laughs> folks. Uh, <laughs> Sue tells David Keith that she knew something was wrong when she started hearing the sirens. And so we then cut to the actual time that the carnage happens as Sue makes her way out of the gas station as Carrie walks into it and completely blows it up. By the way, this is completely from the book, pretty much scene by scene. She does blow this gas station up in the book as well. She pretty much blows up the entire town in the book, as a matter of fact. They're trying to make the additions that were not made by De Palma last time, but as Matt said, sometimes mm -hmm. dead is better. Billy and Chris, they're told about the town blowing up because apparently their lovemaking disguises any sort of smoke or gas from the town blowing up. <laughs> Speaking of the town blowing up, Carrie is once again just leaving a path of destruction as Chris and Billy go flying through the air due to Carrie's powers and bad special effects. 
Cool. Don't forget, guys, this was supposed to be the pilot here. We, we were supposed to continue from this. This is where all the money's going to go is into the pilot. Going back to Smallville. You watch Smallville. The pilot of Smallville is fucking amazing because the effects are actually pretty good. And then as you go further into the season, their effects budget went down further, and it, it got a little worse as it went along. This is the best it was going to get, guys. And these are the effects they came up with. Oh, my God. <sighs> Just a big overhead wide shot of, what feels like a walking through the town and just seeing things blow up and seeing fire start. It's, it feels like a, an overhead PC game from the mid nineties where, you know, I just can't believe how bad, like I love the idea of her walking from school to home, destroying everything in her wake. That is such a great fucking concept. And it's amazing how bad it's portrayed on screen. I half expected a cursor to come up and Tim Curry to show up from Command and Conquer to explain what's happening. <laughs> Adam's allegory of a PC game, overhead game for the late 90s, is spot on. And I'd be a lot more forgiving if I felt scared of Carrie, which is another problem. I'm, I'm never scared. Yeah. This is not Dark Phoenix, the comics, mm. not the movie, because I've mm-hmm. had that fight already. And I'm, yeah, go back to that fucking review. <laughs> That's what this kind of reminding me of, where it's like, mm. oh, shit, oh, shit, we ran out of money. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, good point. By the way, Matt, did you like how Adam included Firestarter in his last comment? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you both have at this point, so I'm just yeah. going to keep it You say it three times, and George Scott shows up in my house being as gracefully sensitive as possible, and I don't want that on my resume. (laughs) So Carrie makes her way home and psychically turns on the bath. She gets in fully clothed, but her mom walks in and tries drowning her. Carrie does what she does in the book and just stops her heart. So instead of the outlandishness that De Palma did where her mom gets pretty much crucified by knives... Here, this is what exactly happens in the book, where she just kind of just stops her heart. I don't think King envisioned a bad special effect that stops the heart, but (laughs) that's what we get here. (laughs) That was definitely a 2000 CSI internal body shot. Great. Great call. I'll say I like the shot of her telepathically, telekinetically turning on the bath and getting into it fully clothed. Because I'm like, okay, they're going to do it, but do it differently. So that's when I appreciate it. I figured out. A few seconds before the mother started drowning her, that's what she was going to do. And it was another one where I went, okay, it's different. I don't know if I like it, but I could go with it based on what I've seen here. So it, it was different enough that, and I didn't realize till I was looking at facts later that this is more closely honed to the way that the book was written. It's not as well done as what we got before, but I could go with it for this. Adam, just come to the TV movies aid. I'm telling you. Again, get used to it, folks. <laughs> Not saying it's better. <laughs> we are going to have fights in the future. I already know. Now, from the final frame of this scene, we assume that Carrie is dead, but we will learn that Chris is the one who comes to save her. We get flashes to the entire movie before Carrie finally wakes up. In the midst of this, we see Miss Day Jordan. She's talking to David Key, telling him that she believes. Carrie White saved her. Carrie goes with Sue to the grave sites of all that she has killed. She tells her that she will drive her as far as Florida. We get a weak attempt at a jump scare as her mom and Chris both appear to her, but they're driving to God knows where to kill as they see fit as credits roll on Carrie 2002. 
All right. I know that was a lot to take in. I know I didn't pause in that whole roundup of the final frames of this, but I'm sorry. You're trying to tell me that Carrie at this point is Bixby from The Incredible Hulk and is going to go from town to town, (laughs) killing as she sees fit and making things better or leaving carnage in her wake. What the fuck is this? With Sue Snell driving the whole way. <laughs> this is fucking ridiculous. Fucking Thelma and Louise, the new class. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before I go to Matt, Adam, come on. What were you thinking at this point? I mean, we saw the brilliant jump scare that you were not expecting in that previous film, and this is how this one ends. You have to be having just as many confl- conflicted thoughts as I was. I'm I'm pissed. Like I'm just like because I'm like okay, what's the jump scare gonna be? Ooh boy, you fucking didn't get me again, and that was just a bad ploy to do so. It oh man, it uh <laughs> it ends on such such a down note. Hmm. It's yeah, it was such a letdown. It doesn't leave you wanting more. It's amazing for a pilot that should leave you at least going ooh, what's next? No, there, there's no way anybody wants more. I could not believe. I sat through a two-hour <laughs> for a TV show that was never made. I felt I felt like a manipulated dumbass just sitting there <laughs> and fucking fuming at the sleight of hand that they pulled. Because up to that point, there's no indication that this was going to be a pilot for a TV show. There were no uh-huh. lead there was no escalation set you up that's going to end exactly like all the other versions. So the scariest thing was that Bob cut blonde bullshit wig that Angela Bennett are yeah. <laughs> not since Woody Harrelson and Venom. Have I seen such a bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, 12 million people tuned in. Nobody wanted to see more of this. And this was how we ended it. And thank God, because fuck. I'm exactly with you two. The symmetry that came with Carrie dying at the end of that last film was perfect. Here, we're supposed to root for her and Sue to go through town to town as they're in a car singing along on the radio. No, no. What What would those opening credits look like? Fuck. All right. You know yeah. what it would be? It would be a fucking, it would be uh, meteors, whatever town one of them landed in, where they went to. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, are they going to be like the fucking equalizer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. She's going to be a supernatural punisher. Like, what is her end game? Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Chloe Grace Moretz, you mentioned the equalizer. All right. I think the discussion on this thing's closed. On a scale of <laughs> 1 to 10, what do we give Carrie 2002? Boy, oh boy, I have two pretty, uh... I'll, I'll go to Matt first. <laughs> I'm going to keep this short and sweet. This movie sucks. They're <laughs> <laughs> short and sour. <laughs> I hate it. This was the fucking movie that broke your no TV rule. <laughs> I would have rather watched one of those old... Lou Ferrigno Hulk movies. I was just about ready to say, if we hadn't been stopped from doing it, this wouldn't have been our first TV movie. I I just want to put that out there. I tried to make it something different, but bosses weren't going for it. All right, go ahead. (laughs) I would rather watch him fight Thor or Daredevil that just has like a bed sheet tied to his eyes than ever 
subject myself to this atrocity. <laughs> Everybody involved in this movie project should be ashamed of themselves. There's a reason why Brian Fuller doesn't talk about this, because if I was him, I would want nothing to do with this. It is of the quality of some of the worst of King's TV miniseries, and believe me, there's a lot of crap that we'll get to eventually. Some of it hilariously bad, and some of it just painstakingly bad. Unfortunately, this is the latter. For all the, the source material... There's a reason why Brian De Palma condensed it into 95 minutes. Get everything you need to convey in that one movie. Rage Carry 2, it's insane. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you know what? There was an angle. There was an obvious feminist angle that Cat Shea approached. This doesn't have anything to say. It is a business mantra through and through of setting you up for a TV show that does a shitty job of setting up that actual TV show because we don't know what the fuck they're about to go do. So this was 135 minutes of wasted time. I've had colonoscopies more enjoyable than this movie. That brings me to my score. And as, as pissed off as I was, I had to sit there and think, is this one of the worst things I've had to watch on this show? <laughs> Again, we're three movies in, Matt. Come on. <laughs> like I, said, I know where I stand on pretty much all the other King properties. So I'll be prepared when we get to the ones I don't like to ask myself that question. But because of how pissed off I was at the bait and switch they pulled at the end, I was at a three. But that set me into, like, bullshit territory. This is a, it's a two on ten. Everyone involved in this, go, you all, I'm officially giving you all a big demerit on your cinematic report cards. You cannot replace it. You cannot have it go away off your record after ten years. It is a black mark. And God damn it, I am so glad this TV show never saw the light of day. Because if it did, it just goes to show how gullible the UPN target demographic was. Wow. Matt went two out of ten. Did you say two or three? Two. I started Matt, at three, so I got okay. to that last scene. I'm like, nope, this is a two. Oh. Fuck this. All right. <laughs> Matt went two out of ten. Adam, you seem to have had a better time than Matt did at this. Can you go higher? You know, I also wonder if this entire TV series that they were planning was going to have David Keith fucking following them around the country if they did so. And just how bad it would have been to not only have these two women, but this fucking random police detective chasing him down. This was the Incredible Hulk, was exactly what mm -hmm. they were going for. Jack McGee, yeah. Um, oh. mm -hmm. Yep, that's exactly what they were playing. God damn, fucking Brian Fuller, you know what? He knows his comics. Fucking, he's also the David Goyer of uh, writing some of this shit, too, and uh, <laughs> look up my feelings on him. This movie is not Carrie. This movie's not even the rage carry too. There's some things that I did enjoy with it. I felt that the school life aspect honed a little closer to what real school was than what we saw before. So for that, I appreciated it. Patricia Clarkson is not manic, but she's also, in that case, not as fun. The police procedural part, it... It was only there, apparently, to set up what we were going to have later on because this series was probably going to have fucking interviews with the police as they were trying to track these women down. It disrupts the flow of this movie quite a bit. Uh, the other characters that are in here, other than Tommy, because we discussed, you know, like Tommy quite a bit, but the main bully that we had, Billy, Bobby, whatever the fuck his name, god damn, just abysmal, horrible, and throws, you know, any enjoyment out when 
you know, when you get to the pig blood scene, when you get to the part of the stuff that you know is coming that you're kind of excited for, all that excitement gets drained away from the way that this movie is done. Angela Bettis, she's not bad. I like the way she played it because I don't feel that it was a total flip towards the end of the movie, which was kind of my issue last time. However, the end of flip at this movie fucking sucks. Once we get to Carrie's as we've said before, her dark phoenix lashing out, this movie goes bad-ish to a pile of crap. And it doesn't get any better for the last fucking 45 minutes of this movie. And if you're not going to do it better, or if you're not going to try something different, why even bother? There is no purpose to why this movie was... It's not a rights issue, so I, I don't see what the purpose was of trying to do it. I don't hate it as much as Matt, obviously, because there are some parts that I did like throughout but I can't go as high as any of the other ones we saw before. Uh, I can't recommend it, but I'm not going to completely shit on it. I'm going to give it a classic GC 4 on 10. 4 out of 10 from Adam. You know, Adam, if you liked her in this, I would highly recommend you check out when she did this role much better in May. And, uh, and, I've, and I've heard that, and hearing you, you talk about it, definitely going to check that out. Yeah, it's worth checking out. It's just a quirky little thing that I recommend. And needless to say, I'm not going to recommend this one, but I, I, I will say this. I know what's coming up in the future, and it's coming up by the end of this year. We have two books to go through by the end of the year, and we have one movie coming up, which I'm going to predict will be worse than this. Haven't seen it in a while, but I don't have good mem fond memories of it. This, I didn't have fond memories of this either. But coming in, I thought, okay, again, with Brian Fuller scripting, David Carson directing, Angela Bettis in the lead, can they give me something I haven't seen before? The answer is no. But the things they did add were terrible. Everything is just worse here. And at the beginning of this, I felt for these people. I'm like, okay, you're following up something tremendous. I don't know whose idea it was to bring this back out of the ashes, especially as King's name wasn't exactly in the stratosphere in 2002. What the fuck are you going to do? And the answer is pretty much nothing. This is a nothing film that I don't recommend people sit through. This is two hours and 11 minutes. Two hours, 11 minutes, and the ending they give, it's inexcusable. This is a chore to sit through. Just doing the plot summary of this, as I was watching it, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to pause this because, you know, a lot of times I do pause so I can catch up and get my thoughts down and whatnot. I did not pause this at all. I'm like, I'm just going to get through it. Just got to get through it. Remember my thoughts. Get through it. It's bad. Casting is kind of inspired with Angela Bettis in the lead and Patricia Clarkson as the mom, but this goes nowhere. It's a pretty painful sit through. God damn. I got to go with Matt. I got to give this a two. There's nothing inspired here. I was not inspired by anything in this movie. Stick with the Palma, at least for now, because needless to say, we're going to see the story again, boys, next week, because Kimberly mm. Pierce decides let's do a remake. And in 2013, we get a remake of Carrie. Now, Matt, what were you expecting in 2013 when you heard, we're going to get a Carrie remake again? I wasn't surprised in the slightest because I grew up in the aughts, which has been the dumpster fire of remakes as far as just announcing whatever the hell they want. I mean, we got a remake of The Stepfather, for God's sake. We got remakes, <laughs> of, right. <laughs> we got remakes of Prom Night. Like they, they, they mined all the A material. We got some B material, 
And then we went all the way down to like the most obscure stuff possible that has any semblance of name recognition. So of course I was going to get one. And King kind of had a resurgence around that time as far as adaptations. We were starting to get more of them again. So it kind of, it's a good generational story, I guess. You know, every generation, especially with cyberbullying, I thought that's the angle they were going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it had potential. My biggest question mark was Chloe Grace Moretz. And I'll say this in the nicest way possible. Going into that movie, when I heard she was cast, I was like, she is way too pretty, quote-unquote, to be Carrie in my eyes. But the casting of Julianne Moore got me really excited because I think she's one of the best actresses out there. I thought she could have done wonders with that role. So I wasn't running, to, breaking my own legs, running to the theater to go see it. But I was interested, at the very least, to see if they could update this in a meaningful way. Now, Adam, I'm not sure if you you knew that Julianne Moore was the mom in this one, correct? I did when I looked up IMDb, yes. Okay. All right. And I know you're a big Julianne Moore fan, too. So this week we watched Carrie 2013. What are you expecting? The cast, I think, is pretty damn fantastic when you look at it, because not only is Chloe Grace Moretz, obviously, Julianne Moore, who I've loved forever. God, I watched that. Really? God, what was that movie even that I watched with uh, Sylvester Stallone and... uh... God, (laughs) Assassins. Go fuck yourself with that. (laughs) So So I go all the way back there. (laughs) <laughs> Goddamn right. Good God. Um, but I mean, you're, you're talking Ansel Elgort's in this movie, Judy Greer's in this movie. So it's got a lot of people that I enjoy watching on screen. However, the name Stephen King does not get me to a movie theater. Flipped. Based on that, though, I'm excited to see, does this do something to make it relevant in 2013? Is there something that needs this story to be told other than bullying is bad that makes it different than it did in the 70s? And I'm hoping to see something out of that. I really, really am. All right. And as for myself, I was commissioned to review this by the Amigos. (laughs) Dave was like, you're going to go see it and you're going to review it. So I kind of had no choice, but I was looking forward to it for reasons that I'll get into next week. But I'm like Matt, where the casting of Chloe Grace Moretz just didn't seem right. But all that we'll get into next week. Boys, we can sweep Carrie 2002 under the rug. We're done with it. We're moving on. We're going to finish the Carrie part of this retrospective next week. That means we have one book down and, what, about 84 more to go? What am I done? <laughs> and, again, we'll be talking about Brian Fuller again sometime in the next few years when uh, his Christine is out and we're reviewing it. But... Until next week, when we talk Carrie 2013, I can hear your dirty podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. Why didn't you tell me, Ma? The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. <laughs> The boy! This is just a test that will let me know how to help you better. You're wasting your time. Just answer the statements, true or false, okay? Edited by Garrett. Don't get all pissy. I'm only trying to be nice. You don't give a shit about Carrie White. And everybody knows it.
You're with me on this, right? Voice narration done by Adam. They're really good. We wouldn't give you a hard time if we didn't like you. We could have had them by the balls. I can see your dirty pillows. I like you! I mean, I'm in I'm in good shape, all things considered, but I'm not I'm not yeah. what you call the picture of lifeguard standards. <laughs> Mm-mm. Speaking of standards, let's talk about this shit. <laughs> <laughs> They're all gonna laugh at you. Thank you for reminding me, by the way. In that whole thing, I forgot to say the director. So stay quiet a bit, guys. Directed by David Carson. They're all gonna laugh at you. So this time, Margaret Wright is played by Patricia Clarkson. She takes a lower end approach, I think. I think she um, she's definitely you know while while um, God damn, what was the name of the actress who played her last time? Fuck, Laurie. Thank you. Uh, while Piper Laurie, they're all gonna laugh at you. Day Jordan, she uh, warns the other girls about making fun of Carrie anymore, and she ends up saying the next punishment is three days suspension and refusal of their palm uh, of their uh, prom. God, I can't talk today. Prom privilege. They're all gonna laugh at you. Chris has a plan, and we are seeing the severing of the friendship between Chris and Sue because Chris wants to make what she did right. Or no, it was Sue that wants to make what she did right, huh? Yeah, I wrote mm-hmm. that down wrong. Um, we're seeing the severing of the friendship between Chris and Sue. Yeah, this was a huge thought that was going through my mind as I was watching this. Oh, God, what a cast on that fucking screwhead, by the way. Jesus. Yep. Yeah, it's like <laughs> David Pierce, Patton Oswalt. It's insane. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hell of a cast. Never heard of it. They're all going to laugh at you. Are, are you fucking kidding me with this? How the hell did this fucking kid get this gig? Yeah, what, what I... <laughs> Go ahead. They're all going to laugh at you. He's Farkas grown up is what I got out of him. Ugh, mm. Such a, it, it no. So, it, of all the things that are bad in this movie, he's right there with a the fucking meteor shower. Yeah, and he gets some close-ups Farkas. too, and they're rotating on his face and everything. It's just bad. Which one's Farkas? I barely remember a Christmas story. The he's the villain, one who, the, uh, uh, the bully. Oh, oh my God! Now, now I cannot unsee that. Go fuck. <laughs> They're all gonna laugh at you. So we are an hour and eleven minutes in, boys, and look at this. It is time for prom, which means we still have over an hour to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what, though? <laughs> you, you guys need to come up with a system or something like a clicker. <laughs> go ahead, Matt. They're all going to laugh at you. Uh, Day God damn, I have a problem saying her name. Day Jordan. They're all going to laugh at you. 
You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.